Thanks for joining us. Coming up on NTD Business. The latest on the unprecedented indictment against former President Trump. House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan today ordered a former Manhattan prosecutor to testify. And what would be Trump's lawyer's next move? A nationally known law professor analyzes the case. Stay tuned for the interview. Google unveils its latest supercomputer technology, which it uses to power its AI systems. What does this mean for the AI war? Parental permission needed for social media? Arkansas may be the next to sign it into law. Pension protests in France. Protesters target a building with a BlackRock office in it. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Good to have you with us. Don Ma here. On Wall Street, stocks ended higher today. The Dow added three points. S&P rose 15 points or 0.4 percent, and the Nasdaq gained 91 points or 0.8 percent. The first strike back against the office that brought the indictment against Donald Trump. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed a former Manhattan prosecutor to testify before Congress. The move came days after Trump pleaded not guilty to felony charges brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. The indictment has ignited outrage from Republicans. Mark Pomerantz is a former special assistant district attorney in Manhattan. He worked under current DA Alvin Bragg and wrote a book titled People vs. Donald Trump. He has also openly campaigned to criminally charge Donald Trump. Jordan asked him to testify before the committee. The subpoena comes after Pomerantz rejected an offer to testify voluntarily. He said he was instructed to refuse by the Manhattan DA's office. Stormy Daniels, who's at the center of an alleged hush money payment scheme involving former President Trump, is speaking out. Daniels was recently ordered to pay Trump's attorneys just over $120,000 in legal fees. In an interview on Piers Morgan Uncensored today, Daniels says she doesn't think the former president should serve jail time if he's convicted in her case. But Daniels went on to say that she feels Trump should absolutely face jail time if he's found guilty of, quote, the other things that he's done. The ex-adult film actress also says she would absolutely testify in Trump's criminal case if it does go to trial. And earlier, I spoke with a nationally known law professor to get a sense of the strength of the charges against Trump, whether the case will be dismissed, and if Trump will serve jail time. Take a look. Joining me is John Bantab, nationally known law professor of public interest at George Washington University. Now, on everybody's mind is, what is Trump's legal team going to do next? He's been charged with 34 counts. He pleaded not guilty. Maybe enlighten us a little bit. Almost certainly his team will file a motion or several motions seeking to get the indictment quashed. He can argue that legally it doesn't fly because that because it's trying to bring in a federal crime on a state charge. They could talk about prosecutorial misconduct, selective prosecution, and perhaps one or two other things, hoping to get the indictment thrown out. Now, let me ask you in detail. You mentioned faulty legal theory. Can you expand on that? Let our viewers know what that is. Yes, the primary charge is that there was a falsification of records. That is a misdemeanor and the statute of limitations has run on that. So in order to get around the statute of limitations problem, the prosecutor has said it's a felony because they made the record change 
in order to commit a federal crime which is influencing the election. Ordinarily, record-keeping cases are not even brought as crimes. They are handled civilly. But this idea of bootstrapping, of using a state case to try a federal violation is something which has never been tried before, and many people just think it will not work. Now, what do you think Alvin Bragg's strategy will look like going forward? Well, Alvin Bragg is going to try to defend each of those motions, and I think he may have some problems. Uh, on selective prosecution, I've seen more than a dozen people ask the question, would anybody other than Trump have been indicted on this ground? And the answer to that is no. That's what we call selective prosecution. The charge itself, as I said, is, is somewhat weak, and uh, I think the motion has a reasonable chance of success. One of the problems with this case is that we're dealing with something which is where there's no precedent. Lawyers, law professors, prosecutors, defendants, and judges all rely on precedent. So it's hard to make any kind of predictions. Also, we know that at least in the past, there's a phenomenon called Trump law. What that meant is that years ago, when Trump first got into office, some judges were so upset by what he was doing and his treatment of other judges that they applied Trump law. That is, that they would bend and twist and turn standard legal doctrines to try one way or another to get to Trump, whether or not they would have done so otherwise for anybody else. So you can't discount the idea there might be Trump law working that way, or there might be Trump law working the other way that people who really believe in Trump might want to bend the law to help him. Now, let me have you take a guess on this. What are the chances that he'll be convicted and will actually serve jail time? Well, that's very hard to say what his chances are at trial because, again, we've seen the indictment. The indictment is silent, completely silent, doesn't mention the other federal crime. So we don't even know completely what he's being charged with. Again, because this has never happened before, I don't think we can predict. We know that on both sides, there are very, very strong feelings. And all he needs is one person on that jury who is a strong Trump supporter to say, I'm not going to vote. I'm going to vote no. And that, by the way, is a constitutional right. Every juror has a right to what we call juror nullification. No matter how clear the facts, no matter how clear the law, he can vote no for any reason at all, but primarily if he thinks the prosecutor has not played fairly, if it's not fair, if it's not just, and so on. By your best estimate, how long do you think this whole thing will be dragged out to? Trump, of course, has a long history of dragging out all kind of proceedings against himself, and he will try very hard to do so here. So I don't know how long it will be. Some people are predicting that we won't have a definitive verdict until after the elections. We don't know. But by the way, whether he's convicted or not, whether he's indicted in these other places or not, he can run for president. By the way, he can even run for president once he's in a jail cell. And interestingly enough, if he does get to be president, apparently he can then pardon himself for any federal crimes. Well, thank you so much for taking my questions today, Professor. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Days after the historical indictment against him, Trump is urging Republicans in Congress to cut funding for the DOJ and FBI until, in his words, they come to their senses. 
He wrote on Truth Social yesterday, quote, the Democrats have totally weaponized law enforcement in our country and are viciously using this abuse of power to interfere with our elections. But with Democrats controlling the Senate and Republicans leading the House, Congress is unlikely to cut funding. Republicans in the past have supported funding law enforcement. But since retaking the House, the GOP is probing how top law enforcement agencies have allegedly been weaponized against political enemies. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan also recently supported the idea of defunding both the DOJ and the FBI. Turning to France, protests against the government's pension reform continued in Paris today. Asset manager BlackRock was also targeted. Dozens of protesters briefly stormed the office building it's in. Demonstrators were protesting against the French president's pension overhaul. Protesters are objecting to the government's plan to increase the retirement age by two years to 64 years old. One protester told Reuters that the union targeted BlackRock because of its private pension fund activity. They chanted slogans and set off firecrackers, the building filled with smoke. The demonstrators exited after about half an hour. Many European countries' pensions are at least partially financed by private pension funds. And this is the 11th day of nationwide union-organized strikes. Public radio broadcaster NPR is criticizing Twitter for labeling it as state-affiliated media. Normally, that label is saved for foreign propaganda outlets. National Public Radio CEO John Lansing is calling the action unacceptable and a violation of Twitter's own policy. NPR does receive some government funding, but the majority comes from corporate sponsors and public broadcasting membership fees. The National Radio Network says it's an independent news organization. Meanwhile, other outlets similar to NPR, like the BBC, remain unlabeled. Parental permission needed for social media? Arkansas may soon become the second state to require this. On Wednesday, the Arkansas House approved a bill that requires age verification and parental consent for minors. The proposal passed by an overwhelming vote, 82 to 10, four members voting present. The bill must now go back to the Senate. It has the support of Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed a similar bill into law last month. Utah is the first state to restrict children's use of social media. And competition is heating up in online search providers. Google has announced the upcoming rollout of AI chatbot search services. And T.T. Marshall has more. Google CEO Sundar Pichai announced that the company will be adding conversational artificial intelligence features into the Google search engine. He doesn't believe chatbots are a threat to Google's advertising revenue. The opportunity space, if anything, is bigger than before, Pichai, who also heads Alphabet, said in an interview Tuesday. While some say Google's AI research was ahead of most others, the company has been struggling to keep up with Microsoft's team-up with OpenAI. Google management even used the term code red when ChatGPT was released. One problem the tech giants have to deal with is coders building chatbot add-on capabilities to search engines, like these Google Chrome extensions that add AI chat functionality to Google Browser. There's also the issue of misinformation. Chatbots are programmed and not able to creatively make decisions to come up with fact-checking solutions on their own. So the competition continues, and it probably won't be long before we see the next development. Sean Marshall, NTD News.
Google says that its supercomputer tech is better than NVIDIA's supercomputer tech. Now, mind you, NVIDIA is the computer firm that powers ChatGPT. ChatGPT is an AI program that intelligently responds to everything you ask. So then, what does all this mean for the state of the AI war? We try to find out. Google publicly released, released details about its supercomputers Wednesday. It says its supercomputers are powered by its own AI chips called Tensor Processing Units, or TPUs. Now, a normal computer has one processing unit. Google says it's connected 4,000 of its TPUs together for just one single computer. This one computer was built to train its AI learning models. Meanwhile, ChatGPT was trained by many computers. Google's approach of using only one computer can give it higher performance and energy efficiency when it comes to training its deep learning models. We talked to supercomputer expert Rami Akili. He's the co-founder of AI firm Umaker. Akili says, here Google is trying to get an advantage through hardware as opposed to software. To run these AI models, uh, most people don't know that they are incredibly, incredibly resource intensive. When Google looks at the market, um, they've identified a very important um, element to make the, these models run more efficiently and, um, and cheaper and make them widely available. And that is by actually targeting the hardware itself as opposed to changing the AI models themselves. And Google, and Google also claims its tensor processing units are better than NVIDIA's processing units. NVIDIA makes what are called the graphics processing units, or GPUs. They're used to power video games as well as ChatGPT. Google says its TPUs are faster and use less power than NVIDIA's GPUs. But are they really better? Now try to follow me here. Google compared its TPUs with an old version of NVIDIA's GPUs. It's called the A100. It did not compare its TPUs with NVIDIA's latest units called the H100. So Google basically said its current units are better than NVIDIA's older units. We talked to supercomputer expert James Barlow, who spent over a decade working with computer hardware. Barlow says this isn't necessarily misleading because the A100 GPUs are popular. Amazon and, and, and Azure, you know, Microsoft, for example, have data centers full of the A100. So when it comes to, again, um, you know, AI workloads and running your, your training and, and, and um, you know, inference on the cloud, which is what a lot of customers and AI startups uh, are doing, the A100 is what is available to them. So I don't think it's necessarily misleading because that is what is on the market today. Barlow says that when more H100 chips come out, that's when the two should be compared. And regarding the state of the AI war, Barlow says it's too early to tell who's in the lead. At the end, there's gonna be so much innovation, right? And there's gonna be so many different use cases and, 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 and products developed as a result of this that everybody's gonna win, right? And and that that's my thought, you know? and. Um, you know, it's it, it, in my mind right now, it's just it's a PR race. Google also hinted it might be working on a new TPU that would compete with NVIDIA's new GPU. But it did not provide any details in its paper. We reached out to Google. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. 
Still to come, weekly jobless claims higher than expected, now closer to pre-pandemic levels. Chicago's mayor-elect promising to raise taxes to help with the city's coffers. How would his plan impact the city and the businesses there? That and more coming up on NTD Business. The U.S. economy continues to cool. The Department of Labor reports first-time jobless claims came in higher than expected. 228,000 people applied for the benefits last week. That's above economists' expectations of 200,000. According to the Labor Department, weekly jobless claims are now hovering around pre-pandemic levels. In 2019, they averaged 218,000. The Federal Reserve has been hoping the labor market would soften to help ease the pressure on inflation. Small business bankruptcies surge across the United States. Private bankruptcy filings in 2023 at record highs not seen since the early stages of the pandemic. This according to a report from Swiss bank UBS. Average February filings were 73% higher than in June 2020. Now's the cause. The Federal Reserve's tightening is largely to blame. The report says this shows, quote, signs of distress in U.S. corporate credit. Industries seeing bankruptcies include real estate, healthcare, chemicals, and retail outlets. But credit conditions are tightening across the spectrum, and large businesses and individual borrowers are feeling the heat as well. And businesses in the third largest city, Chicago, will be facing more taxes. Chicago's mayor-elect has proposed about $800 million in new taxes. It's part of his plan to eliminate the city's budget deficit. An expert weighs in on what impacts the tax plan could have on the city. On May 15th, when Brandon Johnson becomes Chicago's mayor, he will inherit a city with one of the highest debts in the nation. While Johnson says his tax plan will generate $800 million in new tax revenue for the city, Bryce Hill at the Illinois Policy Institute says his tax policy would be disastrous. Um, virtually you know, every area of the city was, was part of uh, Johnson's tax hike proposals, uh, and I think that those could have some really detrimental effects. Johnson estimates that increasing the transfer tax of any property that sells for over a million dollars would raise a hundred million dollars in tax revenue. But Hill says the transfer tax will hurt property owners and renters. Yeah, exactly. It's completely counterintuitive to uh, the, the goals of, of Johnson's campaign when he said he wanted to make housing more affordable. This kind of a tax uh, isn't going to do that. It's going to make housing even more unaffordable for Chicagoans, uh, particularly renters. It's not going to just affect people who own properties, that cost is going to be passed on uh, to, to renters as well. Johnson proposed levying a financial transaction tax of $1 or $2 on every securities trading contract, which would raise another $100 million for Chicago. Hill believes the tax would drive financial institutions away from Chicago. With the financial transactions tax is going to uh, encourage those employers to leave. These are incredibly mobile employers who are not dependent upon being in the city of Chicago to uh, to operate. Hill says Johnson's proposed jet fuel tax on airlines may generate $98 million in revenue, but it could also incentivize big businesses to leave the area. I think for uh, taxpayers, airliners in the city of Chicago to, to shoulder, 
and uh, it's only going to serve again to increase business costs and, and encourage our big businesses and employers to, to potentially look elsewhere. Last year, Citadel and Boeing left Chicago because of its deteriorating business environment. Whether these tax hikes will become a reality is still up in the air, as Johnson has to work with the city council to make these changes. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. Still to come, last-minute tax tips. Where can you go for help and what are the most common errors? Easter egg alternative. With egg prices soaring, some are painting a different food instead. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. The clock is ticking toward tax day, and if you haven't finished or started your federal return, you do get an extra days this year. But if you're procrastinating because the process is daunting, there are still places to turn to for help. With April 15th falling on a Saturday and a District of Columbia holiday on Monday, April 17th, the deadline to file a federal tax return is April 18th this year, which gives people who haven't filed yet a little extra time to check their work. Think about what went on in your life in the last year. Did you move? Did you have a child? Did you get married? Did you start a new job? Tom O'Saban of the National Association of Tax Professionals says the current filing season is less complex than the pandemic years. A lot of the things like the stimulus payments and the advanced child tax credits. We don't have those this year. Those existed in prior years. 2022 looks a lot more like 2019. The IRS says the most common errors on returns include missing or inaccurate social security numbers, misspelled names, and inaccurate figures for things like wages and income. They say math errors and incorrect calculations of tax credits and deductions can often be avoided by using tax preparation software. On Saturday, April 8th, the IRS will open many of its tax prep centers for weekend walk-in in-person help. Some sites will offer specialized help on retirement and pension topics for taxpayers age 60 and above. And taxpayers recently impacted by severe weather in Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, California, and New York may have extended federal filing deadlines if they reside in declared disaster areas. Full eligibility details can be found at irs.gov. Walmart plans to have its own network of electric vehicle charging stations for public use by 2030. The new fast charging stations will be placed at thousands of Walmart and Sam's Club stores. Walmart already operates nearly 1,300 as part of a deal with Charging Network Electrify America. The company has more than 5,000 stores and Sam's Club warehouses. 90% of Americans have a Walmart or Sam's near them within 10 miles. EVs in the U.S. are currently only a small portion of the total number of cars on the road. But this is beginning to change due to high gas prices, subsidies, and more affordable models. The Biden administration's $5 billion investment for a national charging network could also drive EV sales. Egg prices have stabilized from their January highs, but they're still not cheap. That's led some people on social media to try something interesting, painting potatoes for Easter. 
That trend hasn't been lost on potato producers. Marketing and promotion board Potatoes USA is pushing the idea. It's offering tips on how to get the best Easter spud. You can use either food coloring or regular paint. The group says potatoes are less fragile than eggs and easier for kids to hold. It's tough to say if painting Easter potatoes will really take off, but a Crazy Coupon Lady blog co-founder made an excellent point about it to Axios. Joanne Demmer told the website, I don't know how different it is from painting a rock, which she indicated is even more cost-effective. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.